Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is Revolution Z, episode 161. It's a ruminations episode, and it's titled Reductionism and Us. The ruminations aspect of the title, for those who haven't heard, means that I'm doing it sort of on the fly. It was an experiment when I started with Ruminations 1, but it seems to be appreciated and enjoyed because it's much more informal, much more relaxed, much more spontaneous, etc. So, reductionism and us. Well, what the hell is that about? Reductionism, there is a, a, a debate going on about class reductionism, race reductionism, and so on. It isn't always obvious what people mean by those words. Um, the, the word reductionism itself sort of emerged or is most prominent and most carefully used in science, in scientific fields. And what it means then is that you're explaining something in terms of something else which is deemed to be simpler or more basic or more fundamental. So, for instance, you might explain chemistry in terms of the physics of elementary particles and electromagnetism and so on. So that's the idea of what reductionism is. Its virtue is that it's basic. It, it, it provides the underlying uh, explanation, best explanation that you can give. It uh, simplifies in the sense of getting down to a deeper level. On the other hand, it's negative is that sometimes it's virtually impossible, or it actually distracts from anything that's useful for practice. So, for instance, if you, if you were going to try and um, do a reductionist analysis of various diseases, you'd go right past viruses and bacteria to atoms and uh, elementary particles, and that would prove to be utterly useless. It would mean that you were operating on and you were thinking about the thing in a way which was divorced from what your actual agenda is. So reductionism is useful when it benefits your agenda is sort of the, the lesson of that. Okay, so who cares? This isn't about science. It's not about physics and chemistry. Uh, what about, say, gender reductionism? What would gender reductionism be? Well, it would be explaining circumstances in society by way of underlying gender relations. It would essentially be saying that a lot of what we're seeing when we're looking is extraneous, and to get to the heart of the matter, we have to look at the dynamics around gender. Maybe a, uh, a psychologist might use something like that, a psychologist of a certain sort might use something like that. Uh, but it's also possible that one could use it not simply because one believes that it is true, it is valid, the gender dynamics are more fundamental and explain the thing you're looking at. It could also be done out of what we might call fear or defensiveness. So in other words, suppose you think gender relations are really, really important, and if they're ignored, then patriarchy, sexism, gender violence, will go unchallenged. And so you feel like if, if we don't pay attention to gender, if we don't elevate gender to a primary position, to a priority, then it will fall by the wayside. 
In other words, it's either or. Either, either it falls by the wayside or we make it priority one. So fearing falling by the wayside and defending against uh, the uh, ignoring of gender dynamics and therefore the downplaying of the importance of patriarchy, one might elevate gender concepts as being fundamental and as being what we have to understand reality in terms of, if we're going to truly understand it, and as being the basis for the kind of struggle that's fundamental to winning change, and therefore we should understand everything else insofar as it impacts gender relations and gender struggle. So that would be gender reductionism. What about race reductionism? Well, it's pretty analogous. Um, it's basically saying, look, if we want to understand uh, the situation, some particular set of situations, maybe income distribution, maybe uh, housing patterns, whatever it might be, uh, race reductionism would say that we should try and understand it in terms of the impact on racial relations and the way that racial relations cause the outcomes that we're looking at and that we're talking about. The same thing could be true. That is, a person could be pursuing and, and uh, advocating reductionism to racial concepts on grounds of believing that, in fact, racial concepts lie at the roots of social relations and social behavior and social circumstances inside a given society. Uh, but the other possible reason is, again, uh, a kind of defensiveness against a negative outcome. The negative outcome would be ignoring race, uh, relegating race to such a low priority that it doesn't get attention, that it is dismissed as relatively unimportant, or that it is not fully understood. It's only understood in terms of other variables, but not fundamental cultural community variables. And one can imagine uh, something that we might call power uh, reductionism, where the advocate of power reductionism or the employer of, of power productionism basically says, look, the way we should understand everything is in terms of hierarchies of power. We, we, we need to identify order givers and order takers. Uh, we need to identify... Uh, that we need to see how that manifests itself in the situation that we're looking at, how the situation that we're looking at affects those priorities, those hierarchies of power. And once again, it can be because one believes that that's the actual underlying firmament on which everything rests, sort of like the scientist feels that for physics, or because one feels that otherwise it will get shortchanged and power dynamics will be overlooked and one will pay a horrible price for that and therefore to defend against that. And then there's class reductionism. And class reductionism, and until recently, this was the most prominent of these and most frequent of these by far, I think. Now I'm not entirely sure about that. But in any case, class reductionism says, uh, in the most uh, somewhat mechanical, but uh, but revealing form that economics is the base and everything else, gender, culture, political power, is a superstructure on that base. And now if we go back over the other ones, 
Um, the same the same thing, the same picture can be drawn. Gender reductionism says gender is the base and the rest of the superstructure. Race reductionism says race is the base and the rest of the superstructure. And power reductionism says power or authority is the base and everything else is uh, superstructure. So class reductionism says, okay, if we want to understand something about society, anything from something sort of obvious, income distribution, to something not so obvious, uh, the sex life of teenagers, or interpersonal relations inside families, and so on and so forth. What we need to look at is class relations. The, it, the impact of class on the thing that we're thinking about, and vice versa. The effects that the thing that we're thinking about has on class. Not their own intrinsic effects, not their own intrinsic qualities, but basically in relation to class. And again, the exact same reasons. Could be uh, defensive against ignoring class, could be, call it positive, in the sense of believing that it is the right way to go, that it is the most revealing and useful way to think about things. So if we go back to, to the science example, and remember I said something about why it was valid or invalid, but also there was this issue of whether it was useful or not. And both those things are important. It's, it's not just a question of sort of what is abstractly right or what is abstractly powerful inside a classroom or inside a laboratory. In our case, in the case of people who are talking about operating in society and changing society, creating a better society, the, the issue is the usefulness of a set of concepts and a way of thinking to doing what? To understanding social situations and changing them, and therefore to understanding social situations and amassing support, advocacy for desired changes. And that's not such a simple thing. That has many variables and factors that influence it. And so we can ask, is, is one of these, uh, you know, sort of so fundamental that we can argue it? Well, I don't think so. Gender is fundamental. Uh, why is it fundamental? Well, it's because it includes nurturance. It includes bringing up the next generation. It includes the relations of procreation. How can it be any less fundamental? Um, it is fundamental, and it affects everything. It manifests a sort of an influence that permeates society and impacts the way we interrelate, not just in our, you know, uh, uh, our partnership relationships, but in all relationships. And the same thing holds for race. Race is about what? It's about community. It's about communities and their interface and the way they regard each other. And the communities are typically based upon what? Well, it could be lots of things, but it's often culture. It's often holidays and history, shared history, language, ways of communicating, uh, ways of celebrating. It can be regional, it can be racial, it can be religious, and so on. And again, that the dynamics of that are profound and they impact everything. We know that. We know, for instance, racism has an impact on the economy, on workplaces, on the way work is structured, on who does what. Racism affects that. Racism affects the distribution of income. And so racism is also, one can make the same kind of argument of its power and of its impact on society. 
And the same thing goes for power, and the same thing goes for class. So I, I, I don't want to regurgitate it in each one. Uh, I think the audience is aware. Of course, imp class impacts everything. Of course, power relations impact everything. But there's an additional feature, and that is that gender generates groups that have, under certain gender relations, opposed interests. So in patriarchy, it generates women and men, and they have different circumstances, different situations, different consciousness, and different agendas. And overcoming the particular gender relationship, patriarchy, in which men are dominant, uh, requires overturning the whole thing. And the same thing around race. Race relations create situations in which there are communities that have opposed interests, that conflict with one another, that exist in a hierarchical relationship. And if we want to have a different set of race relations, which is does not have those kind of adverse features, but instead is liberatory, celebrates various cultures, etc., etc., then we have to overcome it. And that means what we do when we're thinking about society and talking about society, has to take seriously communicating positively with and gaining support from who? Well, the communities that are respectively or the constituencies that are respectively oppressed. So women in regarding gender. And let's say in the United States, blacks and, and Latinx communities um, and with respect to power, I think it's sort of young people and basically people who are, who are outside the hierarchies of governmental authority. And then with class, well, it's the working class. It's the class and the unemployed. It's the, it's the constituencies in the economy that lack uh, efficacy, that lack control, that uh, get less income and so on and so forth. All right, so... When we choose a conceptual framework to utilize, we have to ask about it. Does it do a good job, not in the hands of some genius off in a lab or in a library or something, but can it do a good job, this conceptual framework, in guiding normal people engaged in daily life and then in political and social struggle in understanding their circumstances and in coming up with tactics and strategy that are suitable, vision that is suitable. Can it do that? In order to do that, it has to be couched in a manner that's accessible, and it has to deal with especially the agendas and the self-conception um, and the needs of the various constituencies at the bottom of the various hierarchies. Now, it turns out that if you do a reductionism, if you opt for, let's call it, highly radicalized feminism, which is, let's say, gender reductionist, or you opt for some of the versions or forms of anti-racism which are now evolving, which do elevate uh, race concepts to absolute priority. That's what we pay attention to. That's how we understand of it. If you do one of these things, you're tending to discount the participation and the involvement of the other constituencies. And that's even if you could utilize that framework and get a good and compelling and useful picture of what's going on in the world. But that's another problem. 
If you focus too heavily on one perspective, you lose the intrinsic and unique qualities and characteristics uh, that are revealed by the other perspective. So it turns out that if you drive toward radical feminism, you tend to become less aware of and less attuned to class and race dynamics, maybe even power dynamics, not entirely unattuned to them by any means, but less attuned to the subtleties and to the more interesting elements for purposes of garnering uh, uh, support and change. Same thing with the others. So what's the approach? What's the solution, I guess? Well, the, the problem is that to have any of these kinds of reductionism in thinking about society and social change and how to make change, it reduces our capacity for uh, communicating effectively with the constituencies that we aren't prioritizing. It does that whether it is objectively usable, uh, in other words, whether the most sophisticated class reductionists can understand everything or not. I don't think they can. But even if they could, it still has a sort of a strategic debit, a big strategic debit. And so does race reductionism, and so does gender reductionism, so does power reductionism. They have this powerful debit. In fact, I, uh, you could make an argument that power reductionism is the most obvious one that you could understand everything. Because all of the other hierarchies in society also involve power. And so you could imagine that a, a sort of a power reductionist approach, an approach that says, look at everything in terms of hierarchies of power, might reveal everything. But I don't think it would. I don't think it would reveal what a, 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 an approach which pays close attention to the dynamics of gender and patriarchy and gets into those, what it reveals about the relationships between men and women and the structural characteristics of sexism and, and uh, um, patriarchy. I, don't, I just don't think it would. Could it? Yes, it could. And, and, but, but could is not what we're looking for. What we're looking for in thinking about a conceptual toolbox, and that's what this really is, right? We're activists in the world and we're looking for a conceptual toolbox, a set of concepts and of their interrelations, which we use to think about new situations that we find ourselves in, new strategic possibilities. And what I'm saying is that that strategic, that conceptual toolbox for strategic purposes, and also I think for accuracy of thinking about things, uh, needs to include or embody or manifest the wisdom that would arise from each of the four approaches that I, I, that I mentioned. So in a sense, the task is, I think, the solution is to have an approach, to have a conceptual approach that doesn't prioritize one facet of social relations, power or culture or gender and sex or material economic outcomes, that doesn't do that, but that instead prioritizes all of them. And that in, it looks at the intersections or the mutual connections or the mutual causality of between each, how each bends the other, how each causes the other in a particular society, because they're different in different societies. You know, 
apartheid in South Africa is different than, you know, cultural relations in Sweden. But so and so too is uh, is our class relations in different countries different and so on. So the solution then involves a conceptual framework that's more flexible, I suppose you could say, more multifocused, and it has another feature in it or attribute to it that's sort of ironic. Imagine that the gender reductionist, since we started with that, analysis is correct. Gender relations, the relations in the family, manifest a pressure which impacts relations throughout all of society. So including, for example, in the economy. And it causes there to be sexism all over the place. And it causes them to be patriarchal dynamics all over the place. Okay. If that's the case, imagine that we had a very, very, very successful radical feminist, meaning feminist reductionist, let's say, approach to society, and we organized successfully, and we overthrew patriarchal relations in the family, where we were focusing. It turns out that because of the effectiveness of, because of the power, gender relations of patriarchy, to pressure the rest of society, even when we had done that, we still would have left because we didn't pay enough attention to culture and community and the state. And so we would have left sexism operative there, and it would, it would sort of undo what we had accomplished. I hope that's clear. The idea here is another way of saying this, it's related, it's not the same thing, is imagine you're, you know, you're a, a labor organizer and you're highly attuned to class issues and not particularly very much attuned to other issues, not, at least not as much, not remotely as, as cleverly and comprehensively. And you grab for your toolbox. And what's in your conceptual toolbox? Well, you know, all sorts of economic concepts, particularly class. And let's even assume that you've got really good class concepts, and you all know that from my point of view that can be false at times, but let's say you do. What you don't have is a whole lot of race and a whole lot of gender and a whole lot of power concepts. And okay, you might say, well, that doesn't matter so much because I can get to the bottom of things using my class concepts. The trouble is you have an inclination to pay attention to class already. Class is in your background. It's in your, it's in your biology. You've experienced it and you are tuned to it and you are sensitive to it. The other things, not so much. You're, let's say, a white guy. The other thing's not so much. And so is it really true that what you need is a conceptual toolbox that leaves out what you're weak at and includes what you're strong at? Same thing if you're black or if you're a woman. To have the gender reductionist toolbox or the race reductionist toolbox is doing what? It is adding to where you are already incredibly strong. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a bad thing to have happen. But what it's not doing is countering and offsetting where you are weak because your background hasn't attuned you to it. Or maybe even has made you insensitive to it or not so positive about it or negative about it. So the multifaceted conceptual toolbox has multiple virtues. And one of them is that it can offset our 
conceptual weaknesses that come from our prior experience being narrow. All right, I guess that's what I have to say about reductionism and what to do about it. I think a, a perspective that combines attention to race, gender, power, and class, or put differently, to culture, sexuality, uh, kinship, um, the state, political system, and the economy is what's needed. And that it's what's needed in the sense of providing us concepts to understand that which we need to understand to develop multi-constituency movements, multi-focus movements, multi-tactic movements that are capable of creating a new world which is new in, in all of its key respects and doesn't fall sway to and succumb to sort of residual features that haven't been addressed in some of those effects, whether the economy, the state, or the culture, or what have you. All right, um, we do have a little time left, I think, and so let me take up two more things very briefly. You may notice that there's a site called uh, nobossesbook.com, and it has a bunch of reviews on it. And recently I just wrote a response to, I don't know how many of them, I think maybe eight of them or something. Um, and there's another batch, and so it's replies one and replies two. And what I, I want to bring up is something that I have found interesting and unexpected. It's um, less relevant to the reviews because I think the reviewers so far have been uh, self-selecting advocates in most cases. So the reviews have been very positive and there hasn't been all that much to, to respond to as uh, having been criticisms or um, concerns or what have you. I mean, I found some things and I put it in the reply, but there wasn't that much. And it's not that surprising. I don't think it says that much other than the people who are doing the reviewing so far are pretty supportive, even largely supportive. And people who are critical either haven't gotten around to reviewing it or don't want to, whichever it may be. But the more interesting thing has been that I've done lots of review uh, of interviews, lots of guest appearances on podcasts. And there I think the 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 selection of those various things, maybe there's an element of it, but I think it's a very small element. I think by and large the venues that have invited me and have done um, interviews and discussions haven't been particularly pro it or con it to start. Um, they've been sort of, well, what's this all about? And what has been interesting is how receptive they have been. Um, if you listen to some of them, the, they, the interviewer, I guess is the right term, has been incredibly receptive in a number of cases, even saying things like, well, how would we, you know, institute those kinds of structures here in our station? And this is a little bit new. I mean, it's idiosyncratic, and I don't want to go too far in claiming that it tells us something about reality or some such thing, but it's at least a little bit indicative that there's been a mood change, a mindset change, uh, an openness to what are strikingly different than what is familiar ideas, strikingly unfamiliar ideas. And yet people seem to seem to sort of 
uh, want to understand them and uh, relate to them. It was one I think I've done that was uh, sort of contrary to that, but the rest have all been like that. And I, for what it's worth, I just thought I'd bring it to your attention and say that, you know, it, it may be betokening a, a positive uh, trend. And one last thing I'll mention, I recently did an article, it's on ZNet, it's called Marxism Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And it's only part of what, or it only bears upon part of what we discussed today with regarding reductionism. But I, I think it's interesting, and it might prove interesting for Revolution Z listeners. I did it as a Revolution Z uh, podcast also. I, it was a session, and I would be very interested in hearing people's reactions to that and to the one today. Does any of it ring true? Does it, uh, does it strike you as provocative, or does it strike you as annoying and uh, wrong? Does it strike you as maybe right? or as eh, opening a, a, a good door that maybe you have ideas that you'd like to air bearing on it uh, to improve it, whatever. Uh, these are important issues. The, the, I don't know what you call it, the label class reductionist and the label race reductionist are flying around a lot now. And it's going to do a lot of damage unless people find a way to not just understand, not just come to terms with all that it's discussing, but to find a way to uh, unify, I suppose is the, is the word. And uh, I think the reality is simply that asking those who tend toward what others call race reductionism to rally around what they see as class reductionism has zero chance of succeeding. And expecting or hoping that those who um, are um, pursuing a course that others deem class reductionist are somehow going to rally around a perspective that they see as race reductionist, again, zero chance. So what I'm suggesting is that an approach which is true to the taste, I suppose, to the inclinations of both those constituencies and a gender reductionist constituency. That is, it pays attention to what they want paid attention to. And it does it in a way that is comprehensive enough and sensitive enough to, to be true to what they're looking for, but yet also calls for paying attention to the other dimensions and doing it in comparable ways. That might have a chance of of uniting behind, I suppose you could say, one banner. Everybody isn't going to unite behind a class uber alles banner. Everybody isn't going to unite behind a race uber alles banner. Everybody isn't going to rally behind a gender uber alles or a power or authority uber alles banner. It's just not going to happen. But Maybe it could happen that everybody could respectfully and in a sense of mutual aid and a sense of mutual learning and mutual benefit rally behind a banner that elevated all of these. Anyway, that's what seems to me to be the case, and I hope it's a provocative enough position to be uh, interesting enough for you to uh, think over and perhaps uh, deliver some thoughts on. 
And that said, this is Mike Albert signing off for Revolution Z. Until next time.